How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 63 of X Lapsed, where we're going to have a little bit of a lighter episode, uh, you know, relatively speaking, uh, compared to the past few episodes, which have been a little bit deeper, um, a little bit uh, heavier. Uh, today we've got, uh, yeah, we're going to go, we're going to go on our little fox hunt here, our war wolf hunt, um, and this is going to be, of course, Excalibur Volume Four, Number Eight, at a May 2020 cover date. Uh, the story is called Verse 8, The Unspeakable and the Uneatable 2, written by Teeny Howard, with pencils by Wilton Santos and Marcos, Marcus Toe, inks by Sean Parsons, Marcus Toe, Roberto Poggi, or Poggi, and Victor Nava. Colors by Eric Archinaga, letters VCs Joe Sabino, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman, edits Bisa White Sabolski, cover price $3.99, and this one went on sale March 4th of 2020. And before we go too deep into this, I want to apologize if my sound levels are a little bit weird. I am having a heck of a time hearing myself. Um, whatever I've had in my throat for the past few episodes has moved to my ears. So uh, I don't know how loud I'm speaking. <laughs> I don't know how bad this is going to sound. And if I try to listen to it back, I still can't tell. So uh, apologies if this is a, uh audio-uneven sort of a endeavor here. But... Uh, I'll try to, I'll I'll try to govern my uh, my pipes here, but uh, let's head right in here. We open with some werewolves snacking on a bunny rabbit. Suddenly, the ground begins to shake, which uh, causes them to scurry. Now, naturally, it's Richter responsible for the ruckus, as elsewhere, Excalibur is fighting off Cullen Bloodstone and his uh, dark passenger, or whatever the hell it is. Um, in case you can't tell, I've been watching a lot of Dexter lately, and he will not shut up about his dark passenger, so, uh, I'm gonna try to shoehorn that into every, uh, every discussion I get into. Now, Cullen nabs Julio with his tentacles, and, uh, but then Betsy swoops in to, uh, I guess, attempt to reason with him. And Bloodstone gives in pretty quick, and then his entire demeanor changes here. It's, we're gonna talk a little bit about truncation later on. This feels like... A scene that was just stopped on a dime and and pushed in a uh, different direction here. Because uh, Mr. Uh, Colin Bloodstone here, he's suddenly very hospitable to our team. He invites him to share a meal and spend the night at Bloodstone Estate. So, okie doke, I guess. Uh, from here we go to credits and then our roll call. Uh, the folks we're going to be dealing with today are Gambit, Rogue, Richter, Jubilee, Shogo, Betsy Britton, Colin Bloodstone, and Apocalypse. It's weird how they won't give him his, you know, his new hyper Krakoa name in the roll call page, but uh, I, I really don't have any follow-up to that. It's just weird that they don't have that. 
Back to comics, and it's dinner time, and we got Cullen. He's going through his rules for this uh, werewolf hunt, which he hopes that Excalibur will abide by. He reiterates that they both have something to gain here. Now, of course, we know Excalibur wants werewolf heads for whatever it is that A is planning uh, in his uh, otherworldly lab. Cullen... He just wants to play party host here. So if everyone if everyone's on the same page and cooler heads prevail, it's just it's a win-win situation, right? Now Cullen makes it clear he doesn't want any mutant stuff going on here, so no use of powers. In exchange, he promises not to let his Glartrox monster out. I guess uh, he wears a ring to keep his uh, dark passenger within him. He then toasts to civility. Now, Jubilee takes exception to this, stating that whether or not they're actually using their powers, at the end of the day, they're still mutants. So, not wanting mutant stuff is kind of a, uh, kind of a a moot point, right? Uh, From here, we get, like, an entire page arguing the semantics of all this, but I suppose the points made are well taken. From here, an info page. It's a letter to Bloodstone Estate from the Coven Akaba. And it's sort of a fear-mongering letter about mutants and their threat, uh, and they offer themselves, the coven, as a point of contact if any of the noble homo sapiens in Britain feel threatened or bothered or otherwise just, uh, I don't know, wanting to reach out. Later on, Jubilee and Richter are sharing a room. The former is loudly snoring. Richter wakes her up and tells her that he needs a little bit of dirt time, which uh, is exactly what it sounds like. And so he hops out the window and, uh, you know, he rubs his hands in the dirt. While down there, he overhears their host on the phone with Coven Akaba. And he hears just enough to realize that Cullen is tipping them off that Excalibur is at his home. Bloodstone realizes that he's being watched and decides to end his call and then just chats up Richter for a bit. This leads to a couple of panels of small talk, followed by Cullen forcibly planting a kiss on Richter's lips. And uh, Richter clearly isn't into it, and he excuses himself from the scene. Anywho, Richter breaks away to Betsy's room to let her know what he just overheard. Now, Betsy's initially cool with everything. She figures that uh, they'll abide by the house rules, they won't use their powers, they'll get the werewolf heads in the morning or whenever the, whenever the hunt resumes, and then they'll be on their merry way. She doesn't see Kavanakaba as being a factor at all. Now, Richter feels that Betsy ain't seeing both sides of this. He's sure that Cullen is going to try to frame them. Frame them for what? I haven't the foggiest idea. Did I miss or gloss over a scene where we learned that mutants or the use of mutant powers were outlawed in Great Britain, the UK, and or England? Um, Or is Bloodstone just going to do something to make them look guilty in the court of public opinion? I really don't know. I mean, does, is Kavanakaba, are they, like, duly deputized by Parliament? I don't even know. Finally, Betsy, who it's worth mentioning is dressed in a really unflattering nightgown, she comes around to Richter's mindset. Now, Rick suggests that they get out on the field right now, use their powers because werewolves are dangerous, catch the remaining wolves, then get out of Dodge before daybreak. And Betsy mulls it over for a moment before finally giving it a thumbs up. And so, our team hits the hunting grounds. Now, Rogue is still wearing that werewolf frock or whatever that she skinned off of one last issue. And it turns out when she raises the hood of the thing, she actually sort of turns into a werewolf. I didn't know that was how it worked, but hey, I'm not a, I'm not a scientist, so we'll allow it. So, Excalibur's doing the thing, and back in the estate, Cullen starts to feel a rumble. 
he knows that Richter is somewhere Richtering. Excalibur downs a werewolf and spends several panels discussing who is going to behead the beastie. Now, Jubilee refuses, claiming that she doesn't she doesn't carry a sword. What is she going to do, chew it off, you know? Betsy suggests that she maybe get herself a sword, and uh, I know we're heading into a, into a very swordy direction, so maybe Jubilee will get a sword. But then Betsy goes ahead and decapitates the thing, so we're up to three heads in the bag here. We needed five. Now they hear some rustling, and they turn to see Gambit running toward them, holding their fourth Warwolf Dome. He's being chased by another warwolf and claims that Rogue in wolf's clothing is running behind that one. Only, it's not actually Rogue in the chase, it's Cullen Bloodstone and his Dark Passenger. Now, Cullen does his gross demony thing while talking pretty tough for like a panel and a half. Then, from out of nowhere, he's KO'd by Rogue, who was apparently still part of the chase but just lost her place in line. So Cullen Bloodstone, the big bad of this story, is knocked out. And as luck would have it, he is carrying the fifth warwolf head, so bingo bango, they swipe it, they got all five, they're good. Uh, the team stands around a bit and chats, with Richter referring to Betsy as Posh Spice, which makes me wonder what year or what decade this is. Uh, suddenly, there's a slight rustling that gets their attention, and Gambit suggests that, uh, uh-oh, we might just have a problem. Now Jubilee looks into the brush and sees something something she claims she couldn't possibly kill. Rogue agrees and defers to Betsy, who says, Nah, they're not going to kill whatever this thing is. Instead, they're going to give it a home. And we, if we want answers, all we got to do is flip the page. So we flip the page, and we discover that this problem is actually an adorable werewolf puppy. And I mean, it's actually adorable. It reminds me a lot of my chihuahua, so it's, it's a very, very cute little thing here. So, back on Krakoa, he sees this pup, and he's all, nah, we gotta kill it. (laughs) Gotta kill it. Betsy refuses, claiming that he has the five heads he needs. And so, he's all, you know, magic and numbers are two different things here. Five was just an arbitrary figure. He wants them all. So, he wants every werewolf head. Betsy again refuses, and then she suggests that he use this as an opportunity to show Krakoa some of his previously unseen virtues. And so Apocalypse relents, and the baby pup can live, thankfully. Info page. The stars are talking? I don't even know what to make of this. All I know is that my eyes glazed over every time I attempted to read it. I feel like Excalibur has some of the worst info pages, doesn't it? I mean, I'm not keen on them to begin with. I've long complained about, like, 80% of them that we've gotten since Hoxpox, right? But these have been, like on par with fallen angels more often than not these are no good no good not interesting not engaging they don't even look cool they're just words uh, now we wrap up the issue with betsy giving the pup to rachel who due to her extensive experience with war wolves is going to be responsible for raising the thing and betsy tells rachel that she got the pup from a Rachel mentions that Krakoa is going to be getting a tiki bar soon, to which Betsy suggests that maybe Rachel go get herself a proper job, which leads to an editorial footnote which informs us that Rachel will be getting herself a proper job in the pages of X-Factor coming soon. That's Excalibur number 8. Next episode, we'll be looking at Marauders number 9. So we're getting very, very close to the double digits here. Uh, The episode after that, another Wave 2 book, we got Cable 
which reminds me of a brief exchange I had on uh, on the Twitter machine uh, a couple days ago. Andrew, uh, Mighty Evil Doom on Twitter, had uh, asked me why Cable needed his own solo series, and I didn't even need to uh, I didn't even need to hesitate because I I basically responded that I've been asking myself that same question for over a quarter century now. I don't know why Cable has ever needed a solo series. That's not to say all the Cable series have been bad or all the Cable stories have been bad, but I don't know that it necessitates an ongoing series for the uh, for the character. And uh, considering that this Cable's a whole, you know, a Cable of a different, uh, of a different, uh, what is it, a horse of a different color? It's a Cable of a different whatever. Um, I don't have any attachment to this guy. I don't know that we could, I don't know if any of us could say we have an attachment to this character yet. So it is weird that we are getting a, uh, that we are getting a solo series with Cable, and uh, perhaps it's just a sign of the the glut, you know? I, I feel like every time they relaunch a family of books, we get, like, we get the books we want, or maybe in some cases we get the books we don't, but then as as it bloats, it bloats. <laughs> and uh, it's making me wonder what's what's on the horizons here. I know we have a like an X-Men Legends book coming out in February of 2020, uh, that's going to be kicked off with uh, Fabian Niciesa telling his version or the actual version of the third Summers Brother thing. So maybe it'll be some Adam X, the extreme, popping up. I don't know. It feels like just another sign of bloat. Um, it says it's going to be an ongoing, so uh, I guess we should uh, set aside the 4 to $5 now, huh? But uh, <laughs> what, were, what were we talking about? We were talking about Excalibur, right? And of course, next episode, we've got uh, Marauders. But uh, before we do that, let's talk about what we got here. Now, Excalibur number eight was a good issue. Wasn't great. Certainly good. Um, it didn't feel quite as fun as last issue. Last issue was was a lot of fun. Um, that said, it is still worlds better than the other world stuff that we've been dealing with. Um, this might actually be the first issue with his volume where uh, I don't think we get any other world elements involved, right? Unless I glossed over one, which is certainly a possibility. I know Apocalypse did show up at the very end, and maybe he mentioned some other world stuff. I just don't remember it off the top of my head. And I don't have the book in front of me right now, so I can't double-check. That's uh, my bad. I'm sorry. Uh, I think it was the uh, most recent issue of New Mutants where I mentioned that that story... And this was the story with um, Nova Roma. I mentioned that it felt sort of kind of truncated. You know, like, we had all these... I don't want to say interesting, because not everything was interesting, but we had these potential story spurs, right? Um, and they felt like they were headed somewhere, and then they just didn't, right? Uh, we had uh, Magma's father kind of trash-talking mutants, and then... That just stopped. Uh, we had Boom Boom complaining about trekking through the forest just as long as it took to finish trekking through the forest. It felt like bits and pieces might have uh, might have fallen out of that book. And I feel kind of like that here as well. Uh, after reading last issue of Excalibur, um, I thought we were going to get a bigger confrontation with Cullen. And in fact, we get two here, but they were both awkwardly short and and that is not to say that i wanted to see a half dozen pages of mutants like color formed over a picture of cullen's monster or anything but this all seemed way too easy 
like, like so easy that it didn't make sense. After the threats made in last issue's cliffhanger, I mean, Bloodstone comes around pretty quick here, doesn't he? Uh, we ended last issue with, you know, Bloodstone and his his dark passenger, you know, his, his monster was released. And here, just a page or two in, he's like, hey, let's do dinner. It felt weird. Um, I, I, I don't know if maybe he was just trying to buy himself some time to call this into the coven. Uh, was this story supposed to get a third issue? I don't know. Um, that was the first confrontation. The second one was just him posturing for a page before Rogue came in and punched him out. I, I, it just felt like way too much build-up for not enough payoff. Uh, kind of unsatisfying. Because, and I mean, I mean, I don't know a whole heck of a lot about Colin Bloodstone. I don't know if he's supposed to be a jokey character. All I remember him from is uh, is Avengers Arena. I don't remember him in his aristocratic uh, sort of... Uh, maybe not aristocratic, but his noble, I guess... Um, Hoi polloi <laughs> setting here. I couldn't say. I couldn't say. Um, let's talk a little bit about context here because this could be my bad, but I feel like I really missed something here. And, you know, I will totally concede that I can be somewhat dense, and sometimes things in story wind up going right over my head, especially when they're things that I'm bored by. Here's the thing. Is there a rule stating that the mutants can't do mutant things in the UK? Was this part of Betsy's meeting with the Queen a few issues back and I somehow missed it? Or just it went, you know, in one eye out the other? Or is this as wibbly-wobbly as I'm assuming it to be? On that subject, what sort of credentials do the Coven have? Are they actually ranking officials? I mean, it couldn't be, right? I mean, they're a friggin' Coven. I don't know. I don't know if they get a they get a chair at Parliament, do they? Do they have chairs in Parliament? I don't know. I feel like without having this foundation properly laid, the stakes of the story just kind of fly out the window. Like, what's the threat here? What could Cullen frame Excalibur for? If they do mutant things, what law are they breaking? I I just don't get it. I feel like I'm missing something, and I probably am. Because I couldn't see these plot points simply coming out of nowhere. So this has got to be on me. Um, just don't know. Uh, I love the Warwolf puppy. And I do hope we see a whole lot more from the Critter going forward. I also hope that, you know, if and when we do see more of it, I'm assuming it's going to show up in X-Factor, that it stays a puppy for a very, very long time. I don't want it to be a full-grown Warwolf for a very long time, if, if ever. Uh, what else we got here? Uh, there was there was that odd forced kiss scene between Cullen and Richter. That happened. Um, I tell you, I liked Richter's reaction. He wasn't into it, and he would later say to Betsy something along the lines of like, "Because Betsy's like, hey, have you guys been together?" And she's he's like, "You know what? Cullen and I both like dudes. Whoop de doo. That's the only thing we have in common." I found that refreshing in a way. Especially after seeing how characters like Iceman were handled, uh, where, I mean, it just, it was very, very weird. Um, It's a great change of pace to see Richter not immediately drawn to being with Bloodstone. I like that a lot. I like him, and I like him kind of, like, dismissing the notion of it altogether. I, I feel like we don't get that enough. So that was cool. And kind of putting Betsy in her place, like, why would you assume that? You know, just because we have this, just because we're attracted to guys... 
doesn't mean we're attracted to each other. I felt that was refreshing. I feel, and this might just be me, that the scene in question was a little bit stunty. Um, like, I don't think it added anything to the story, and it felt felt a little crammed in. Um, this is just me. Part of me wonders if maybe another plot-centric scene may have been excised to fit this one in, considering the truncated confrontation scenes we see here. I, I mean, I don't know... I don't know if the novelty of the, the same-sex kiss on panel is worn off just yet. Scenes like this always come across to me as, as something of a statement. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of representation, right? But to me, this sort of feels like an oversimplification and maybe even like a distillation. Does that make sense? Am I even using the right terminology here? I, I feel very uncomfortable discussing this since I, you know, this is outside of my realm of experience or anecdotary. It just feels like we're uh, like dismissing everything else that makes a character a character and focusing on on one thing. Um, it's it's leading with a, like a more basic and, and less subtle element of these characters' lives, and and I mean I I feel very uncomfortable analyzing this. Uh, it it just feels like they're using shorthand here. Does that make sense? This is shorthand, and maybe I can better explain what I mean. By that, if you'll if you'll indulge me, a uh, an aside here. Um, now, back when I was in community college, which uh, if you've ever been to community college, you know that can be like an endless academic endeavor. Um, anybody out there who's taking classes at the community level might be familiar with the sensation of taking an entire semester, or God help you, a year's worth of classes only to find out at the end of the term that these classes you just took and paid for no longer apply to your chosen academic roadmap. You know, when you start, they put you on a roadmap. This is the this is the degree you want. This is the transfer you want. These are the classes you need to take. Personally, I think it's a scam to keep people taking classes uh, for years on end without any hope of transferring to university. And I was a victim of that. So picture it. About 10 years ago, I was on this community college merry-go-round, and uh, my degree is in psychology. And so my roadmap was heavily rooted in psychology and science courses. Sounds about right, right? Well, about a year and a half in. So that's, uh, you know, at community level, you're generally doing a two-year degree before you transfer to university. So uh, three-quarters of the way to my associate's degree with which I could transfer to university... I was informed that about a third of the classes I'd taken no longer applied to my roadmap. And as such, likely would not transfer with me to university. It wouldn't get me an associate's degree either. I actually never never got an associate's degree. Which is to say, I wasted a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of frustration and a lot of energy. Uh, I started college when I was 31 years old. And I was working full-time. So I was not a happy camper. Um, we were we were about 31, so I was about two or three years away from being very nearly homeless and uh, having absolutely nothing to my name. So a lot of work went into, you know, pulling myself back up to my feet and uh, having this happen really, really ticked me off. But that's not the story here. Now, I was told that I could sort of reverse engineer my roadmap if I took some humanities classes, which were now part of my roadmap. And then I'd be able to use some of my science classes, which were originally on the roadmap, 
as electives, right? So that way I would keep, I could keep as many of my credits as possible going towards this direction. And I'm sure there's an easier way and clearer way to explain all this, but I mean, this is me and I'm not very good at explaining things. So here we are. I moved my science classes, which were mandatory, to elective classes, and now I have these humanities classes, which weren't on my roadmap at all, are now requirements. So humanities are basically your liberal arts classes, right? Your flavor classes, things like art history and whatnot. Now, one of the humanities recommended to me was a Western literature class with a focus on American comic books. And they just launched it, so they were pushing the hell out of this thing. They were like pilot programming it. They wanted as many people to take this class as possible to see if it was going to remain on in the curriculum or on, in, in the course load or whatever. I was hesitant. I did not want to take this class because I feel like I'm not good at very many things. But one thing I do know is comic books. So now... If I actually take a class based on the one thing that I know, and I fail it, well, then hell, what do I even have left at that point, right? <laughs> I mean, my life's passion, um, in so far as hobbies are concerned, have been comic books. And if I find out that I, that I don't know what I think I know, and not in the Marvel everything you thought you knew was wrong, but just, hey, as a, as a fake-ass comics historian, you know Jack, I, I didn't know that my ego would be able to handle that. Anyway, suffice it to say, I took the class. And it was actually the first class that I'd taken at the college level where I scored every single available point. So I got 100, you know, percent of the class. Now, why in the hell am I telling you all this? And what does this have to do with shorthand? <laughs> well, we had a guest lecture that the professor was very, very excited about. Now, this lecture was given to us by a couple of PhDs talking about representation in comics. But they did so in a very mocking way. And they also wouldn't go more than about 30 seconds without reminding us that they, in fact, were PhDs. So they did this in a mocking way, or maybe dismissive is a more accurate way to put it. Now, they weren't dismissive of the people being represented on panel, but to the creators who wrote and drew them. And this lecture was pretty painful to sit through, but... It was the first time I'd ever heard anyone talk about literary shorthand as it pertains to something like representation. The prime example, and this was the example that they kept coming back to. It was like, it was a butt of a joke for them, and they kept coming back to this one thing on their PowerPoint. It was a single panel from a Marvel comic of the Bronze Age featuring the character White Tiger. In it, they mocked the use of religious iconography in White Tiger's apartment. They said that this was shorthand for White Tiger being a Hispanic character, a Latino character. It's worth noting, neither of these PhDs realized that George Perez drew the panel in question, but uh, they wouldn't let it go. It was very obnoxious, and uh, it got to the point where it was like, I gotta say something. And it, which was, you know, stupid on my part. I mean, who am I? I'm an idiot. But they just kept coming, like, they'd, they'd talk about representation, and it's like, uh, but then there was White Tiger, and they'd come back to that panel with White Tiger there with, like, a velvet Jesus painting and a, and a crucifix on the wall. And it's like, okay, we get it. A little bit about me, over half my family is Hispanic. I married into a large Mexican family, and very, uh, when, we, when I go to family gatherings, back when we were allowed to have family gatherings, <laughs> 
before 2020 happened. If you were flying overhead and looked down, you would see one white dot, and that'd be me. You know, I was the I'm the only non-Hispanic at these gatherings. Now, one thing that everyone on that side of the family has in common is religious iconography being ubiquitous and plentiful in their homes. Now, they kept going back to this uh, this white tiger, and I mentioned this, prefacing that it was just my own personal experiences, and anecdotal at best, kind of playing devil's advocate with... Uh, yeah, I hate, I hate being devil's advocate, but I kind of was. I also reminded them that George Perez drew the image. Um, the, the, you know, this is this image that they would not let go of as an example of poor representation. And perhaps most egregious of all, neither of them seemed to know who or what a George Perez was. They're giving a lecture on comic books. Now, upon realizing they were talking to an actual comics fan in me, and, you know, a fake-ass comics historian in me, they quickly changed the subject to talk about Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, which is probably another subject I could talk your ear about off about, but, uh, frankly, this tangent has probably already outlived its welcome. I'll just say that uh, the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, hard travel and hero stuff is uh, just a bit ham-fisted. I mean, their hearts were in the right place, but uh, try reading that lately. Yeesh. Uh, now, one of the bits of devil's advocation that I offered was that comics try. You know, they try. They might be a little bit behind the times. They might be a little late to the party, but they try. They're not always going to get it right. But again, they try to do right by being open-minded, by being diverse, by being representative. And I attempted to appeal to these goofballs by pointing out what a risk it was in the first place to introduce a Hispanic hero. I mean, frankly, simply from a marketplace standpoint, that's a risk. And yes, that might sound silly and quaint in current year, but I mean, late 60s, early 70s were a very different time and the comics industry was a very, very different place. I then cited, you know, something out of the day. I cited an issue of Fearless Defenders that had come out that very week of this lecture. And the cliffhanger page of this issue of Fearless Defenders was a same-sex kiss between Valkyrie and... I don't remember her name. She was like an archaeologist or something. I asked them how they viewed this as it pertained to representation. I asked if this was shorthand, or at the very least, a sort of exploitation for shock value. And I mean, this was 2012, 2013-ish, so a same-sex kiss on panel shouldn't be a shocking cliffhanger. It should just be something that is, right? Well, they didn't know uh, what a Fearless Defenders, nor a Valkyrie was. And I was pretty much simply dismissed by some, you know, we still have a long way to go sort of sentiment. Um, I was a little bit irritated, but not terribly surprised. So all of this to say, and I apologize for droning on as much as I did, and I hope I didn't turn anybody off with anything I said here, but uh, because, I mean, this is a subject I have zero credibility in. I just feel like this scene was kind of forced in and, and a little bit exploitative and uh, not so much marginalizing, but minimizing these characters. And, I mean, agree, disagree, think I'm a horse's ass, <laughs> whatever the case may be, I... I just feel like that uh, scene just came out of nowhere and uh, felt... It just reminded me of the of the concept of literary shorthand as it pertains to uh, things like representation. And, uh, yeah, I apologize for that tangent. 
Back to Excalibur. Overall, like I said, it was a decent little story. Suffered uh, some pacing issues. Uh, The art here, worth noting, was a bit uneven, which probably to be expected considering there were like 750 artists on... There were like a half dozen artists on this thing. That in itself may be evidence of truncation. I mean, we've seen that before. We've seen it before where... You know, they, uh, they cut certain bits out, but they need they still need other pages drawn. They're going to go one way instead of another, so they bring another artist in. They go straight from from roughs to inks. That It doesn't look like we went from roughs to inks here, but, uh, you know, the point, I, I hope the point is, uh, is well taken. I figure the issue is probably worth checking out. Uh, at the very least, uh, I will say that it got me excited to see more of the Warwolf puppy in the pages of X-Factor. So, that's that. Uh, before we go, we got some mailbagging to do. We're going to start with uh, a missive from Damien regarding Marauders number 8. Now he says, I have very little to say about this issue because it was practically perfect. The reactions of each character to Kitty's death were perfectly executed. Each revealed a truth about the team. The elemental fury of Iceman particularly stood out. Ice has the potential to seriously injure people without killing them. He can hurt people without killing them in a way that few of the X-Men can. And that is a problem with this book. That is a problem with books that are good. There's hard, It's hard to say much about them, isn't it? And uh, I find myself struggling when we come across good books. Maraud is, is, is usually a very difficult um, script to write because, like, what can you say? You know, it's I could just say, it's good, and then <laughs> move on. But it's easier to pick at things, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Um, I agree with Damien for the most part here. I do think that Iceman's um, brutality was a little much. And I said the same thing about Kitty early on in the series. But I thought that that was uh, a bit much. I do appreciate that, uh, I mean, he was in a rage. Um, so I do appreciate that. But still, it felt felt like a little bit much. Um, Damien continues, I think I've said before that my favorite element of Marauders is the momentum. Everything feels important, and it relentlessly moves on. There's no part four of six feeling. Every issue advances the overall story or shows a development of character. It's wonderful. And I agree. I agree. Um, I think I only had any sort of issue with uh, like one issue of Marauder so far. I think I, I complained a bit about uh, Kitty being very annoying during Marauder's number two. Everything else has been fantastic, and even that issue wasn't bad. She was just annoying. <laughs> but uh, no, Marauders is Marauders is good comics. Um, I I hope, and I I haven't checked the uh, the sales charts uh, outside of the few times we did it here on the air. But I I hope people are buying Marauders. I hope Marauders has a strong readership and uh, and continues for as long as it can. It's a very very good book. Very very good book. If you're not reading Marauders, I Definitely recommend you do so. But thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, Damien. It's always appreciated and always uh, look forward to it. Uh, next, we have a letter from Jeremiah. He just finished reading Excalibur number one. He says, I read Excalibur number one last night and listened to the podcast. Unlike you, I really like King Arthur mythology mixed in when possible, so I thought that was okay. But, woof, the comic was not great in my opinion. It was confusing, and I just didn't understand what was going on with the exception of Captain Britain being controlled by Morgan Le Fay. If I were someone who made comic buying decisions based on one issue, I would have not bought issue two. 
So far, it's my least favorite of the Dawn of X launch books. It doesn't help that I don't care that much about Gambit and Rogue either. And yeah, I mentioned to Jeremiah that I feel like Excalibur is trying to do too many things. It's trying to be too many things to too many people, and as such, it really doesn't succeed at any of it. It's trying to be a superhero book. It's trying to be this, like, swords and sorcery book. It's trying to be this uh, King Arthur myth. And and it's pulling itself in way too many uh, directions here where none of it really comes across as being all that good. Um, I mean, the issue we read today, Excalibur number 8, far better than anything from the first handful of issues, for sure. And, and even that one I had some problems with. But, uh... Yeah, these early issues of Excalibur are a little bit, a little bit rough. I su- I'm sure that there are folks out there who love the concept of Otherworld, who love uh, the way that they are integrating um, the uh, the Avalon Camelot mythology here, and that's great. I'm just not that guy. Uh, this was, like Jeremiah said, my least favorite book until I got to that other one. So <laughs> Excalibur was was a tough sell, and just like Jeremiah says here, if I uh, if I were someone who made decisions on reading one book, if I'm going to pick up the next one, and I wasn't a a psychopath who has to own everything, I'm sure I would have dropped, dropped Excalibur, for sure. Um, it's probably a good thing that I let it sit and just gather. When I, when I, uh, when I started buying these books, I, you know, I wasn't reading them as I was buying them. They were just stacking up. Had I been reading Excalibur, maybe I would have gotten the wild hair to stop, you know? I'm happy I didn't, so you know, we have this little program and adventure here to, uh, to play with. But, uh, but yeah, Excalibur certainly wasn't my favorite early on. So thank you so much for, uh, for checking in and uh, for following along, Jeremiah. It really means a lot. We're going to wrap up with a short comment from our friend Evan, Evan Bevins. He just read Fallen Angels number 2. And he wrote to me and said, Fallen Angels number two, making sure nobody has fun reading comics, not even with a Dazzler appearance. And, uh, yeah, Fallen Angels number two, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that was uh, one that Damien wrote in to say that uh, that might be like on his short list of worst X books he's ever read, Fallen Angels number two, because I came down on the... I really, really wore the kid gloves early on in the Fallen Angels reviews here. For the first two or three issues, I was kind of... I overcorrected. You know, I overcorrected my scores, or my opinion. Because uh, I didn't want to come down too hard on it. I knew I didn't like it. But, uh, you know, there's a difference between not liking something and something not being good. And I always figure that my opinions are wrong, of the time. So if I don't like something, that must mean everybody else does. So I hesitate to say, this is bad. Uh, Damien came in and said, no, no, this is bad. And then other people came in and said, no, no, this is bad. You're being too nice to this book. (laughs) And and I came around. I came around, and and Fallen Angels has become sort of a butt of the joke on the program at this point. But, uh, yeah, Fallen Angels number two... I mean, Fallen Angels number one could have been just an anomaly, right? It might have just 
it might have just come limping out of the uh, out of the stall instead of running. So it's like, okay, we'll give it that first issue. Issue two, though, was like the rude awakening. And uh, I think it set in for a lot of us that, oh, this is really what we're getting out of this book. And I feel bad for the folks who were reading it as it was coming out because they didn't know it was only going to run six issues. So this was... They were buckling in for the long ride, you know. I at, at least when I read it, I knew it was only a six-issue deal, at least for now. So it was just like, okay, well, we're a third of the way through, <laughs> you know. I was I was able to take solace in that fact. But uh, Fallen Angels two was not good, not good. And Dazzler, she gets a, she shows up for like something like two or three panels, and still gets a little, you know, a little button on the roll call page, but. Uh, yeah, yeah. I thought she was going to join the team. I think that's what I said when I read it. I thought she was going to be a fallen angel, but uh, no, it wasn't the case at all. But uh, thank you so much for uh, for putting yourself through fallen angels for us, uh, Evan. <laughs> I, I'd love to hear your thoughts moving forward uh, through that series, if you if you do decide to. And I figure you're a third of the way through, and it'll probably only take you about eight minutes to read the rest of the thing. So if you have a spare eight minutes. Give it a goo and uh, and let us know. But uh, thank you so much. Um, now, if anybody out there would like to uh, let me know your thoughts on anything, anything at all, you could do so. Uh, reach me at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find the show notes and blog posts at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. This program resides at xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. There's also a Facebook page, 90s X-Men, and the entire Chris and Reggie archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I think that's uh, where we'll put a pin in it for today. I hope I haven't been shouting in your ears. I really, really hope I haven't been shouting at you. I just, I can't hear. My hearing is really, really in and out right now. So if I shout it at you, I'm not mad. It's uh, just uh, I'm, I'm sick and too stupid not to do a show. Um, but uh, I, hopefully this uh, this all sounded decent-ish. As decent as anything I do might sound. But thank you all so, so much for hanging out and sharing your time with me. And uh, look forward to hearing from you all. And uh, until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.